0: Mamas on a Mission is a podcast bringing you bold and ambitious women. Grab a coffee and let's meet Melbourne mamas who are showing the world and their kids that the mission is possible. I'm your host, Holly, the Chief Mama of Motherhood Melbourne. Hey, 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 welcome back and thank you for letting me chew your ear off every week. I'm both delighted and a little freaked out when mamas tell me they listen to this podcast in bed. I don't think I have a soothing voice, but I'm glad you're tuning in, especially to this episode. It's a goodie. At the start of the year, my latest guest and I both had babies around the same time. You can probably hear him in the background. Only Sarah's experience is a little different to mine. Sarah shared her beautiful story on Motherhood Melbourne, and I wanted to find out more about Sarah and her experience. Sarah Jefford is a family and surrogacy lawyer who helps people through their surrogacy arrangement. But Sarah is also a surrogate and an egg donor, and this year she gave birth to a little girl so that another loving couple, Mike and Nate, could experience the joys of parenthood. For many of us, our understanding of surrogacy might come from little snippets of what happens in movies, TV, or overseas. However, surrogacy in Australia is very different to other countries. It is a truly an altruistic act. And so through both her work and personal experience, Sarah is on a mission to help the community see surrogacy and egg donation as a beautiful opportunity to help others grow their families. Sarah hopes to show that the true reward is in the giving, not the receiving. Today, Sarah shares her experience of surrogacy Before, during her pregnancy, birth, and beyond. She also clears up the misconceptions that people have about surrogacy in Australia. And lastly, you'll hear about the legal role Sarah plays in a couple's surrogacy journey. Let's meet Sarah. Hi, Sarah. I'm really excited to speak with you today. Thanks for having me, Holly. Oh, it's my pleasure. Um, I'd really love to start off with getting to know you a bit more. So, could you tell us your coffee order?
1: I uh, have to be a flat white with one sweetener. I try and keep the sugar low but got to keep the coffee high.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And where what's your favorite cafe that you like to drink this at?
1: uh i found one near near me it's called the generator it's in uh north coburg Um, and it's kind of like an industrial zone i guess most of the places around it are industrial but there's also a school nearby and it's just a really funky little cafe they play like show tunes but the staff are great the menu's great and the coffee's really good so yeah that's my new favorite oh that's awesome what's your favorite show tune actually Oh goodness! Oh, I don't know. It'd have to be from one <laughs> of the Disney movies, like Aladdin. I used to sing Aladdin mu- uh, music when I was in high school choir, so it'd have to be one of them.
0: Oh, lovely! That's so interesting. Um, yeah. And, <laughs> and what about your favourite family-friendly place?
1: Um, I really like going to the NGV, the um, the one on St Kilda Road. I don't know, that, like, I don't take the kids there a lot, but I like going, and when I do take the kids, it is pretty child-friendly. Um, I've taken my big kid to see Van Gogh. That was pretty cool. Um, So, yeah, I like the NGV.
0: Oh, beautiful. Actually, I haven't been there. Um, I don't think I've been there at all. Is that really bad? Uh, yes. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it is good fun. I like going when there's a show on. So I saw the... um. Museum of Modern Art exhibition, which came over from New York. That was pretty amazing. But we saw Van Gogh. Um, pretty much if it's a big show, then I'll, I'll make time to, to do it. And because I work for myself, I can kind of schedule in an NGV visit in the middle of the week, which is nice.
0: Oh, that's nice. Yeah, I better get myself yeah. down there. Um, what is your current binge at the moment, whether it's a TV show or a podcast or a book? Um, Look, there's a
1: few. I'm I'm a bit of a um, Outlander fan, which is I think it's like a guilty pleasure. Um, so Outlander on Netflix, or uh, I used to really like Rake. I'm not really into the latest season so much, but it is good fun.
0: And is that on Netflix as well?
1: Uh, that's I think the first ones are on Netflix, but you'll find the latest one on ABC iView.
0: Oh, do you know I'm like the only person in the world that doesn't have Netflix? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's to get I, on it yeah I know I know I'm missing out on so much uh, <laughs> what about your simple self-care ritual
1: um, at the moment I'm finding running is really self-care like it sometimes it can be hard to get out but when I've done it it just feels amazing and I notice such a big difference in my mental health but also just feeling that sort of clarity and feeling like I've done something for myself because I went for a run
0: Oh, absolutely. I'm a runner too. And I just, that after feeling, the way you feel yeah. for the rest of the day. It's yeah, so those endorphins. Oh, yeah, yeah. The Even when time. you're really
1: sore and you're thinking, you know, like I can't walk properly or yeah. <laughs> whatever it is, the endorphins are amazing. They do last all day.
0: They are, they are. And we're both at the same stage of postpartum as well. So yes. h- how are you finding that with running? Um, well, so... I think I thought I would get back
1: into it when I was about you know 10 weeks postpartum and I just didn't have the motivation and I was probably feeling too big and heavy uh, and then somebody said to me that it really I should wait until six months if I'm running just you know looking after my body and pelvic mm-hmm. floor and all that so I just used that as an excuse to not do it for a while and I did start when I must have been I think just six months post and I've been doing it since so that's uh it's only about two and a half months or since July so it's a bit longer but it's it's been consistent like i as soon as I was back into it I was pumped I was like yeah well, let's do it so I'm aiming for the 10k at the Carmen Women's Fun Run which is in oh, another eight weeks
0: oh that's cool yeah. that's really amazing yeah. and it's good so something to Yeah, something to look forward to as well and aim for. It kind of gets you out and about rather than just going, oh, yeah, I'll skip it, I'll skip it.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's right. I have to be motivated because I've paid for that ticket to do the 10K. I have to finish the 10K. So I've (laughs) got to get off my bum and go for a run or I won't make it to the 10K.
0: Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. Congratulations. (laughs)
1: Yeah,
0: great. All right. Well, thank you for sharing all that. And I'd really love to start talking about your surrogacy journey. So could you please share for us your own experience of becoming a mother and how that led you to first consider helping others to have children? Sure. So, um,
1: When I was in my 20s and hooked up with my husband, who had been my friend before that, um, I think we started talking about kids pretty quickly, but I'd only just started my career. So we sort of held off for a little bit and then we did start trying and nothing happened. And eventually we did go and see a specialist and we were diagnosed with male factor infertility. So we eventually did IVF and I had a lot of eggs. They barely gave me a bit of stim hormones and I had heaps and heaps of eggs. And we made lots and lots of embryos. And we then went through seven transfers um, of embryos to try and get pregnant. And it was number seven that took. So that was about four years of trying. And I remember at the time thinking, well, I've got all these eggs and all these embryos that we've made um, that, you know, one day I might think about donating eggs or embryos to somebody that needs them more than me um so the IVF process was also really hard I thought I'd never want to go through this again I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy so uh, we had Archie in 2010 and so he's our little IVF baby but we'd also run out of embryos at that time we used them all up in the process um we then started talking about having another and we figured we'd have to go back to IVF so we started saving money for that and in the meantime thought, well, Archie's now two, why don't we try naturally and see what happens? And a month later I was pregnant. So we didn't have to go back to IVF for RAF um, and he's just turned five this year. So uh, when he was born, I do remember in the first few weeks thinking i I don't want to have any more. We're actually like we sort of went back and forth about, well, we always thought we'd have a lot of babies and here I've got two and I feel like this is, this is it. This is enough. But there was this sort of pull to do more with, I guess, reproductively. I had more to give. Um, and that was a real tension because I kept thinking but if I have another baby I'm I'm stuck with the baby aren't I I don't actually know that I want to have a third child or a fourth child so we talked about it a lot and we actually talked about whether we needed to take precautions to not get pregnant even though we'd previously suffered with infertility and at first I started looking into egg donation and I was still breastfeeding so that was a bit of a problem because um my cycles weren't back and all that sort of stuff so it took a little while but um I think in 2015 I really pulled the pin out and said yep I'm gonna donate my eggs and I found a couple online to donate to here in Melbourne and I went through IVF for them and donated my eggs and that was lovely and then I did it again but uh, for another couple Uh, but during that time I was also thinking yeah that was great but I feel like there's more to this than just egg donation, that I could actually do more than just donate my eggs. And I was on a number of egg donation forums where there were women who were talking about being surrogates. And I, I remember thinking, uh, yeah, look, I could give my eggs. Um, I don't think I could give a baby. I don't, I don't know that I could be a surrogate. And I think a lot of women would say that. I get people saying that to me. I could never give away my baby. And I thought that too, but there was a, a light bulb one day I thought, I want to experience pregnancy and birth again. I have more to give reproductively, for want of a better phrase. Egg donation is great, but I feel like I could do more. And I don't want the baby at the end of a pregnancy. So, you know, surrogacy is actually the answer for me, that it wouldn't just be about giving a couple a gift of a baby. It would also be about me being able to experience all of that and not have to care care for the baby afterwards. Um, which is probably a strange way to come to it. But I actually suspect that some surrogates feel like, you know, we've had an easy pregnancy, you could do that again, but I don't want more kids. Mm -hmm. Um, So I raised it with my husband that day and he was like, yeah, all right, you know, put the brakes on a bit. (laughs) Let's just think about this for a while. And egg donation was fairly easy to come to, I guess, because it was my eggs and he didn't really have to do much other than turn up at the counselling and, you know, meet the intended parents that I was donating to. With surrogacy, it was much more a team event that he really needed to be 100% on board with it because it's not just about Sarah's giving her eggs to another family. It's um, Sarah's going to be pregnant for another family and we're going to have to have this these people as part of our family. So we did talk about it for a long time and I also went through the process of donating my eggs again and I did a lot of reading and I read some real horror stories, um, which is actually, I guess, the silver lining for those horror stories is that we had a lot of take homes from them about what we could do differently to sort of avoid the, the bad scenarios Um, and eventually I, um, met up with uh, Mike and Nate who became our intended parents and I'd met them through another woman who had been their surrogate, but she hadn't conceived and she'd had to, um, say she couldn't continue as their surrogate, uh, because of her own family issues. And she said, these guys are really great if anyone's interested in talking to them. And all I really knew about them at the time were that they were lovely, that she was able to sort of vouch for them, but also that they lived in Melbourne, which for me was sort of hard criteria that they needed to be nearby. I didn't want to do an interstate surrogacy arrangement. Um, And I had coffee with them and thought, these guys are lovely. And because I'd done so much research already, I already knew what I was looking for. I think they were probably more nervous than me. Uh, and we kept chatting for a few months, and they met uh, Troy and the kids, and we got to know each other a bit more. And eventually, I offered to be their surrogate. So that's how that all kind of came about. Um, and then they, w- the process of going through surrogacy, it's fairly similar in each state. In Victoria, uh, they had an egg donor, so they had some embryos at the clinic, and uh, we had to go through counselling through the clinic. We all had to have independent. Uh, psych assessments we also uh, had to get legal advice
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Uh, we had to do all the long list of things like police checks and child welfare checks and blood tests and std checks and the whole lot like this is you can see why i say that it had to be a team event because if my husband had, had only been sort of half excited about it he would have been pretty annoyed with having to get an STD check to to do surrogacy when he wasn't going to be the genetic father and he wasn't going to be involved in the actual physical process of becoming pregnant Um, and then we went to the patient review panel and they approved us uh, to go ahead and we went to the clinic to have embryo transfers. Uh, We had one and it didn't work. And Mike and Nate had already been through a long process of trying to get pregnant with their other surrogates. So they were pretty exhausted. And because I'd been an egg donor and around that time, uh, one of my egg recipients had actually just given birth. I knew what it was like having a baby out there that was actually genetically from me, but not mine. Um, So I offered to be a traditional surrogate for Mike and Nate, which means we, uh, would do it with my egg rather than the uh, the embryos that they had created. So, uh, again, lots and lots of talking and, and working through issues and that sort of stuff and eventually decided to do that. And um, I think it took about four months, but we eventually conceived a child uh, with my egg. Um, and she was born in January this year, same time, around the same time that you were giving birth.
0: Yes, yes, we yeah. did. Oh, my goodness. Oh. Sarah, that's such an amazing um, story and thing that you've done. I'm just wondering, so obviously, you know, you had to have lots of uh, discussions with your husband and for him to be on board. How did you talk to your children about this? What ages are they? And, yeah, how did you talk to your children and I guess anyone else who's very much involved in your life?
1: Yeah, so with the kids, it was raised fairly early. They're now eight and five, Mm -hmm. I think, when we started talking to them about it. They knew that my eggs were being used to help these other couples have a baby, and we talked to them about what was happening. That one of them was pregnant, and then there was a baby. And um, and at a really basic level, we talked about what makes a baby: is the egg and sperm and uterus makes a baby, and that who are the people that provide the egg and sperm and uterus. And in the case of egg donation, mummy was providing the egg. Uh, the father was providing the sperm and the mother of the child was going to be carrying the baby even though it was made with my egg. And on that level, they just sort of get it. They're like, yeah, sure, it's like a recipe. You just (laughs) put an egg and a sperm in uterus together and you get a baby. Um, So when it came to surrogacy, I think one day my son, who must have been five at the time, he said, we were talking about our friend who has two mums and I said, yes, that's right. Some kids have two mums and some kids have two dads. And he kind of laughed and said, well, how do, how do they? Ha- how did two boys have a baby? And I said, well, they might have somebody like me carry the baby for them because I have a uterus and they don't. And I mentioned Mike and Nate, and he was like, oh, oh, okay, then, yep, that's fine. <laughs> so he, he, again, on that level, they don't know any different. That mummy mm. carried the baby and gave it to somebody. As far as they're concerned, that's. You know, sure, okay. Who doesn't do that? <laughs> like, yeah. um, it's an ongoing conversation. I had somebody describe it as a perpetual journey, and I think my relationship with the baby and with Mike and Nate is a is a perpetual journey. I think uh, the discussion with my kids and their understanding of it will continue to grow. Mm-hmm. Uh, what we I, I guess there were some surprises, which I shouldn't have been surprised about, but I just hadn't thought about it that much, was that people would say to my uh, Raff, who's now five, after the baby was born, they would say, oh, Darcy looks like you, Raff," And he was a bit confused about that. He was like, why Why do people keep saying that the baby looks like me? Um. And I said, well, remember that you came from mummy's egg and Darcy also came from mummy's egg and that when babies come from eggs or sperm, they look like the person that gave the eggs or sperm. And that's why you also look like granddad, for example, because I came from him and you came from me and Darcy also came from me. So we've then also had discussions about what words to use because people have used the word sister uh, with them to describe Darcy, which I'm okay with. I don't have a problem with the word. It's Mm -hmm. more about making sure that they understand that, they can use that word as long as they appreciate that Mike and Nate are her parents and that she's not in our family. She's not growing up in our family. I mean, we're all part of an extended family, but that, um, I, I don't think that the word daughter when describing her relationship with me is appropriate because she has two dads. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think sister or brother is sort of a bit easier for the kids to understand in terms of, yes, she does have a relationship with you and it's more than just cousin, for example. Um, And it will change as she gets older and she wants to know who are these other kids that look like me and, you know, we we all got an egg from the same person but she's not my mum but she's their mum. That sort of discussion, I think, it will change as it goes, um, and I have a half sister who we don't refer to as half sister. She's just my sister, but that discussion as kids, people wanted to know why she looked like me but was different. Mm. I guess, um, and she has a different mother to me. So it's I guess it's an extension of that discussion of how babies are made and who helps to make them, essentially. Yeah, but the kids are honestly they're pretty unfazed by it. They're very excited mm. when the baby born and they wanted lots of cuddles and they do think she's pretty special. They, you know, I think Raph finds her more interesting than Archie. Archie's more interested in Pokemon. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but they both sort of dote on her. They both want cuddles with her. They, you know, have to make sure they've washed their hands because they're always trying to touch her face and, you know, just like what kids do with a baby. Yeah. Um, and I have heard from other parents at the school that their child has been talking about, Archie said that there's a baby being born and that it lives with Mike and Nate. And I thought that's interesting because I didn't think Archie was actually that interested in talking about it, Mm. but he seems to talk about it and particularly if people um, ask questions about it. He, after she was born, um, he went back to school about 10 days after her birth and he was taking photos in to show everyone pictures of baby Darcy and, and the family. So that was quite nice.
0: Oh, that's so sweet. Um, Yeah. (laughs) And can you share for us then, so what was your experience like when you were pregnant as a surrogate? Um, It was a bit surreal, I guess, because some surrogates will
1: say they kind of feel detached. I don't think I was detached. I don't really think any of us are detached from the pregnancy or the baby insofar as we still care about it and we're still sort of excited, but it's different from being excited about our own baby. We're not. we're not having to think about getting the nursery set up or buying clothes or planning for the postnatal period the same way that you would if it was your own. Um, and you don't have, you know, you don't have everyone sort of celebrating the baby that's coming to your home. They're sort of celebrating with the intended parents. So I did find it a bit surreal that sometimes I would forget I was pregnant and then I would catch sight of myself in the mirror <laughs> and go, oh, that's, wow, that something's happening there. Yeah. Um And she wasn't a big mover, so I didn't spend all day sort of feeling the kicks. I also had an anterior placenta, so for a long time I didn't feel much at all. And then I would see myself in the mirror and get a real shock. (laughs) There was definitely a baby there, but I wasn't feeling a lot of it. Um, And I had a really easy pregnancy, I think, in some ways, because I didn't have to stress about getting ready for a baby coming home. Um, And... Look, we, we we would go to appointments and things um, and Mike and Nate were sort of buzzing with excitement about seeing the baby on a scan or hearing the heartbeat or talking about the baby. And I was excited for them, but I didn't. In some ways, it was kind of like, you know, I've actually got work to do. And this is a bit inconvenient for me. Can we move on? <laughs> can we just get the appointment over so I can go home? Um, so that was kind of interesting, I guess, because I wasn't. didn't feel like it was a hassle it was just less exciting than if I was bringing the baby home to me we hadn't conceived her with any intention of bringing a baby home I'd done it and it was like okay well you know when it's over I'll get back to my life and you guys will have a baby and that's great but the excitement was very much on their part yeah
0: yes and did they do so I guess would they have done any antenatal classes or you were just like Um, oh no I've got this (laughs) I've got this we did
1: we did talk about it. Uh, so my second son was born at home. So I was really um, wanting, uh, we we decided together we would have a hospital birth, but I did really want it to be a natural birth if we could. And um, so in that regard, I wanted Mike and Nate to understand what was happening because I knew if they were in the room and really stressed about what was happening, then that mm-hmm. wouldn't help me to labour. Mm-hmm. So we did have a private birth class it was just us three and Bria Dempsey, who's a birth educator here in Melbourne and a doula. Mm-hmm. And then we also went to a birth class at the hospital together. Uh, which was a bit basic for me. It was sort of talking about optimum positions for labour. I was like, I've done this twice. I don't need this lesson. <laughs> but it was good for them and mm. it was good for me to be there so that I could see what they were learning about. Um, and they also had a separate class with a midwife there, I think, to talk about sort of early baby needs like feeding and uh, sleeping and nappy changes and that sort of thing. And funnily enough, the hospital was a bit confused about why I wasn't at that lesson because they, they're used to having a pregnant woman in the room when they talk about those things and I was yeah. like, I'm not turning up to that. I don't, I don't want to know about changing nappies. Um, <laughs> so, so they went along to that and, yeah, but that was all, I guess, it was driven by us. We had to sort of request things from the hospital because otherwise we would have just been treated as a regular mm-hmm. um Uh, pregnancy and third time mother you know I would have been treated a bit differently to a first time and they were first timers and I wasn't so I had to work through that yeah
0: yeah that would have been interesting and could you tell us a bit more about the birth because that's what I was wondering like you know obviously did you have them in the room and did Mm. you talk about you know you were saying that you wanted a natural labor as much as possible um yeah so what what sort of happens in that situation when, you know, perhaps if there is any conflict or is it just like, well, you're the one that's carrying, so it's about the choice that you want for your body?
1: Yeah. So one of the things about surrogacy is that the surrogate actually still has bodily autonomy. So okay. what I say goes. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, we all had like a team approach to it so there was no way I was going to have an appointment without talking to Mike and Nate about that appointment and them coming along they came to all the midwives appointments Mm -hmm. there are a few appointments like with my GP just to pick up a script that they didn't come to and you know it was just inconvenient to get us all in a room just to pick up a, a script for a blood test um But they were at all the midwives' appointments and it's really, I guess, discussions about things like uh, genetic testing and termination and treatment that I might have had during pregnancy and birth. We have that as a team discussion, but ultimately, if there was an argument or a disagreement, then I would still make that final decision. It was still my signature on the consent forms, for example. Mm -hmm. Um, I definitely wanted them in the room. One of the things about being a surrogate is that the, the ultimate is actually seeing them become parents. So if they're not in the room and you're delivering a baby, I feel like it kind of takes away from the whole point of the whole thing if you don't actually see them becoming parents and they get to see the hard work that you've put into making and, and pushing out this baby, but also you get to see the visual of them becoming parents. They see their baby being born. It must be, you know, it's the ultimate. Um, so it was never a question about whether they would be in the room for the birth we did have lots of sort of discussions about whether they would really be there for the whole labour. Um, my second was only about six hours and really the, the pointy end was about three hours. So I thought, well, if it goes like that, it's, you know, pretty easy for them to be there and they watch it all happen and they can even support me with, you know, cold face washes and water and that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, what actually happened was completely different, but that's a, probably another hour long podcast. <laughs> <because> <laughs> Darcy was breached uh, which I found really frustrating because I've actually had all three of my pregnancies have been breached at some point. Um, but Darcy had her own ideas about it and we had ECVs, which is where they turn the baby down. We had three of them in the end and she would go down and stay and then she'd pop back up again. Um, and we had acupuncture and she would go down and then she'd pop back up again. Uh, so with the birth, it eventually became an induction because she, my water's broke and She was head up. So they turned her head down, and then fully broke the rest of my waters and induced me so that she would stay down. And what she actually did was put a hand above her head. <gasps> <laughs> so I've, I spent the next twelve hours labouring, and things just didn't progress, and she still had her hand up. Um, so we eventually went in for a C-section, and. It was actually the C-section itself was really lovely. Mike and Nate were allowed into the room, which we had previously negotiated with the hospital because their policy is to have one person only. And we said, no, that's not really good enough because both of these men are her dads. Yes. And it's their right to see their baby being born and I, how would we pick, how would we pick one over the other? And one has to stay out of the room while the other watches their baby being born. I don't know how you would make that decision. So we pushed back on the hospital and they had said, yes, Mike and Nate can both be there. That was fine. In the end, I guess because we had a really great obstetrician, she also invited my husband in so that we hadn't expected that, but he was able to stay next to me and Mike and Nate were able to watch their baby being born just behind him. Um, so that was amazing. Cause I, I didn't get to see their faces so much, but we have lots of photos of them and their reactions as she came out and they saw that it was a girl. And of course there was lots of tears, um, lots of celebration. And, and then uh, they stitched me up and Mike and Nate took the baby into the recovery area and had some skin to skin. And then when I came out of um, theater, they brought her to me and I had lots of skin to skin and we had already decided that that was something that was important to us, that baby would be on me. Initially, because if I'd had a vaginal birth, then she would actually come out, and I would hold her until the cord stopped pulsing. Yeah. Um, in C-section, obviously that doesn't happen. But she was back on me as soon as I was in recovery, and then she actually had um, uh, breastfeed from me because I hadn't been able to express any colostrum. So we we were advised that really the best way for her to get it was direct from the breast, and we talked about that a lot because I think I was a little bit anxious that. Um, I'm the surrogate. I think breastfeeding can be a really intimate experience between the mother and child. And I wondered Mm. whether breastfeeding this baby that I hadn't intended to be mine might be a bit too much. But actually, it was really lovely. It was really nice, I think, to have... Because I breastfed her directly for the next 24 hours-ish and then a Mm. few times after that over the next week or so. And I was also expressing. But it was kind of like a long goodbye. It was like... I get this time with her and nobody else has this opportunity because I'm the one with the breasts and I'm the one that birthed her, that this is a special time that I'm not really taking away from them because it wasn't that I was breastfeeding instead of them. And it's it's our bond that she and I have together. Um, And they could have their bond as well, but it wasn't going to be instead of my bond.
0: Yeah, so that was quite lovely. Oh, my goodness. And Sarah, so did Mm. they not know that they were having a girl?
1: No, uh, I've discovered by accident. (gasps) (laughs) Um, So I knew. Yeah. We had a a quick scan at 28 weeks just to check on the growth. Mm. And uh, Nate was there, um, but it was a dodgy old sonography machine that you don't really see the details. But the sonographer said, I'm going to scan the femur and she did it but she was right up the bottom end mm. and I thought I know what that looks like that's that's a baby girl um and then I had to keep my mouth shut for 12 weeks because they uh. wanted a surprise I'd wanted them to have a surprise and I yes. found out so <laughs> I had to pretend <laughs> that I didn't know for the next 12 weeks so they found out at the birth which was lovely uh. I think they'd convinced themselves that they were having a boy because I've had two boys before not that it mm. really applies but that's what they'd sort of got in their heads yeah. so when they got and got a little girl they were quite surprised
0: uh, yeah but, and that yeah. um that photo that you shared of their you know with them in hospital looking at Darcy. Yeah. oh my gosh it's so so beautiful it makes me cry looking at it
1: yeah we were quite lucky we had uh, so i had my own doula um katina and we also had a birth photographer brie who was also mm-hmm. a doula but she was with the blokes uh, out Because I, I was labouring for a long time and they were often out of the room for those bits. We'd had agreements that they would be out of the room for any vaginal examinations, and yeah. at any point that I felt that I needed time out, or um, I think also my husband was sort of concerned that they they would be really anxious seeing me, you know, going through labour. So they were out of the room for a lot of it, and they were sitting with uh, the photographer, who's also a doula, and she was sort of supporting them, and then she just sort of popped into the recovery and started taking photos and she snapped, well, she snapped quite a few that are really lovely, but that particular one is just amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And it's now been um, shortlisted for the birth photographer awards, which are being announced later this month.
0: Oh gosh. Yeah. 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 So, so beautiful. I love that photo. Um, And can you, so then I guess, What's happening after, like, with the recovery? How, how did that go and what was that experience like?
1: Um, so I think I was expecting it to be worse from a C-section than from having two vaginal deliveries. Yeah. And I had kind of frightened myself into thinking it's going to be really painful, I'm not going to be able to move properly. But I'd spoken to a few friends who had had C-sections and they were like, no, it's really fine, you just need to stay on top of your pain meds and you need to, you know, try and be as mobile as you can. Um, in some ways, the my body was saying, you've just had a baby, but my head was thinking, well, I need to get back to work. I need to get back to the kids because I didn't have a baby in my arms. And it seems really silly to say it, but it's almost like you forget that you've had a baby because they're, mm. she's with her dad. She's looked after. I just need to get back to it. So I did push myself a little bit too much in those first few weeks and have to keep reminding myself that I was still postnatal. I still certainly looked like I'd had a baby. Um, or I looked like I was still pregnant. <laughs> so I did have people asking, when are you due? Oh, so, don't you
0: hate that? The though, baby's
1: yeah. already with her dad. <laughs> so,
0: yeah, yeah. That's, um, that's the hard part afterwards. Like if you don't have the baby in your arms and you go to the shop and you you yeah. do still look pregnant and people ask you and you're just like, <laughs> it's like the worst question <laughs> to ask.
1: <laughs> I did walk around. My birthday was four days after Darcy's birth and my husband took me out for lunch oh. and I was walking around looking pregnant or postnatal and feeling like I just wanted to yell at everyone I just had a baby it's okay I don't normally look like this. <laughs> I was leaking milk I, you know my belly still looked pregnant um so in terms of like the Mike and Nate had their own room at the hospital so Darcy was in with them and they just brought her to me and I would breastfeed and then I was uh, pumping to try and bring the milk in And then they left the hospital with her and I stayed in an extra night. That was a bit surreal because everyone around me had a baby with them. So I could hear these babies crying and that was just a bit sort of off putting. I was like, I don't know why I'm here. I just want to go home. I don't have a baby with me. Can I go now? Um, Being back at home was actually better, but uh, again, trying to run around after two kids when I could barely you know I certainly couldn't walk fast mm. that was and and I was pumping I found this really interesting that I decided I would give her some breast milk and see how long that lasted and we got a hospital grade pump so that I could do that but I was back in this routine of having to pump every three hours and that's not where I wanted to be I was like yeah. I didn't have the baby for me so that I didn't have to deal with the newborn routine and here I am in a newborn routine I don't I don't like this. Mm. Um, That was very surreal again. So I expressed for her for about three weeks and we were seeing each other almost daily for that three weeks. Um, And she was doing really well. They were doing really well. She's a very chilled out baby, which I'm sure is partly to do with me being very chilled during her pregnancy. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I gave them milk for the first three weeks. And then it's been a sort of gradual, almost a gradual weaning in terms of we would see each other every day. And then it became every two days and then it became and maybe twice a week and then a bit less and then maybe once a fortnight or thereabouts. It's kind of stretched over the last eight months or so. Um, And it's been a natural sort of weaning, I guess. A lot of surrogacy is not so much about um, the relationship with the baby, which I do have. It's actually the relationship between the surrogate and her partner and the intended parents so I'd gone from seeing Mike and Nate daily throughout the last part of the pregnancy uh, or at least having daily contact with them and then the first six weeks after the birth was almost daily as well and then having to move on where I get on with my life and they get on with their life which is now really different because they've got a baby in it and having to get used to not having that really frequent contact and we still have lots of contact they're still in you know they're in melbourne so it's not hard to see each other but they ha- they have their business to run and they have a baby to look after and i have my business to run and i've got two big kids to look after so it's this sort of gradual stretch out of the relationship so that it reaches a new a new normal i guess yeah. and i have been told that can be it's really a 12 month process i guess that first 12 months after the birth where it's so intense and that relationship is quite intimate and connected and intense and it has to stretch out to the new normal where they have their lives and we have our lives yeah
0: yeah and so did you have a conversation obviously before all of this process started about what the relationship would be between you uh with them you know moving on
1: we did I think um my husband actually used to say if we're doing surrogacy it can't be a transaction we have to have yeah. people that we have a relationship with and I was like yeah yeah of course, whatever. Um reality is, the reality is that you grow in your friendship so much that you don't have to have too much conversation. I think uh, they'd always said, oh, look, there's an open door policy. Sarah can always drop around and visit the baby if she needs to. And we'll always do what we need to do to make sure that she gets what she needs. And they would check in on me and they were sending lovely photos and um, all that sort of stuff we never really had to have a conversation where we said, right, we're going to schedule it in. It has to be every mm. Wednesday at nine o'clock that you're going to spend time with Sarah. Cause it just doesn't work for any of us really to mm. have that sort of locked in time. Um, yeah. So I guess most of it's really happened very naturally that it would just be, Hey, do you want to catch up? And, you know, depending where we were postnatally, I couldn't drive for the first six weeks. That was a real frustration um, because of the C-section and, so it really relied on Mike and Nate doing the travel, which they've never had a problem with, but it was sort of, you know, how do we work in with everyone's schedules and Sarah's not able to drive to the other side of Melbourne to see them. Um, yeah. But we've never really been drop-in um, sort of friends because I, I can go down and see them at any time, but it's yeah. not just a of turning up on their doorstep. Um, so, yeah, and I've done a little bit of babysitting for them and they babysit for my kids too. So yeah.
0: Oh, that's yeah. great. That's really nice to hear. Um, yeah. So I was wondering if you could now share some of the misconceptions about surrogacy, especially in Australia, because I think a lot of our perceptions of what it is or what it means comes from movies or TVs and very, I guess, Americanised.
1: So uh, lots of people think it's illegal and there's a few reasons for that. I think number one is that um, it's altruistic. So there's no commercial surrogacy in Australia And I think that's a good thing. It means that the women that are doing it are not being paid anything to carry the baby. Uh, What they do get is reimbursement or they get their costs covered, so medical costs and um, their time off work and that sort of thing. But it does depend on which state you're in, which also makes it confusing. There's also laws in most states against advertising for a surrogate. So that's also why I think people think it's illegal, is because you don't see adverts where it says we're looking for a surrogate because we're a gay couple or because you know, their mother has had uh, cancer, for example. Um, and I think that's a real problem because it stigmatises it. It means people just think it's all happening underground and that it's a bit of a dirty plan that, you know, we've, we're making babies and we're just handing them over. It's actually very regulated mm. and that makes it I think that's really good, but it makes it less accessible for people to realise that it's happening already. There's only about 50 to 60 babies born in Australia each year through surrogacy, which seems like a big number given that you don't see it on the front page of the newspaper. But it's very small compared to even overseas. I think there's about 250 babies born overseas to Australian couples. And that can be commercial, which is usually the United States. They can also go to the Ukraine. Uh, Canada has a different model, which is similar to Australia, but it's it's, so it's altruistic, but uh, it's regulated differently. So Canada, America and the Ukraine are probably the most popular for people to go overseas. In Australia, because of the advertising laws, people find each other often on Facebook or on a forum. There's one called Fertility Connections where you can post your story and it might be... Uh, we've had a cancer diagnosis, she can't carry, we need a surrogate, and telling the story about how they came to that and then making connections with somebody that might want to be a surrogate. Um, there's a real lack of women who are going to be surrogates in Australia, partly because of the advertising and partly because they're not going to be paid for it. Um, and it's a it's a hard task. If you're going to do something altruistic, it's not just a matter of, you know, um, I don't, you know, working for charity, doing a bit of volunteer work. Um, It's actually that you're going to give your body over for nine months, Mm. plus all the months that you do the legal, the legal advice and the counselling and the psych assessments and any travel that you need to do and going to clinics and all of that. It's a really big task for the surrogate and her partner and her kids to be involved in. It's it's kind of all consuming, Um, so there's a lack of women wanting to do it when they don't get any payment at the end. It is amazing though. I think I I would never want to do it for payment because the experience of doing it was made all the better because there was no transaction involved. It wasn't mm-hmm. that they owed, they didn't write me a check after the baby was born. It was very much this relationship is now bound. Like we're, there's no way that we can ever break the the bond that we have because I gave them a baby and they gave me this experience of being able to see them become dads. Um, the, the, there's no money, the money can't buy that really. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we're hoping that laws will adjust, particularly in Victoria, and they're changing them soon, I think, so that advertising can be easier and brings it sort of, I guess, into the forefront of people's attention because you'll be able to mm-hmm. see um people discussing it more openly and also that we need to make sure that the reimbursement is really good because at the moment in victoria in particular you can't get reimbursed for a whole lot of stuff that's actually a legitimate pregnancy or birth expense so Mm -hmm. people don't want to do it because they can't be out of pocket for it um yeah and hopefully destigmatizes it even me talking about it hopefully destigmatizes it surrogacy is the best thing i have ever done in my life and I'd hope if there's other women out there listening to this and thinking, well, I don't think I could carry a baby and give it away. Well, I, I also used to think that, and actually it's the best thing in the world because I haven't given her away yeah. in terms of, um, it's not like the, I guess a transaction where I just hand over the baby and I don't see them again. Um, this is, I, I think I've gained more than they have. They got the baby, but I got the, I got everything. I got to see them become parents, and that's an ongoing thing. I'll see that when she's twenty-five, that they're still experiencing parenthood.
0: Yeah. Oh, goodness. Um, and can I just ask a question? Were you then entitled to the government paternity leave?
1: Uh, yes. Yeah, so okay. it depends on um, your eligibility in other ways, in terms of okay. when you meet their income test or their work test or whatever it is. Yeah. But the surrogate can get paid parental leave, which is the eighteen weeks or whatever mm-hmm. it is. And the intended parents can also claim it um, in that if one of the intended parents is a primary carer, they can claim the paid parental leave and the other, their surrogate can claim the paid parental leave as well. Yep. My advice to people is that they sometimes need to push a bit with Centrelink because not everyone at Centrelink will be aware that both of them can claim it. And it's yep. not a lot of money, um, but it does, I guess, mean the difference between her being out of pocket um, and being able to take time off work so that she can recover from the birth, for example. Okay, okay. Yeah. And
0: what and what happens too with uh, the birth certificate when when the baby's born?
1: Oh, that's actually really exciting for us mm. at the moment because uh, so when the baby's born. The legally, the presumption is that the person that birthed the baby is the parent. Okay. And if he's got a partner, like I do, married, then they are also the parent. So when we filled out the birth registration form, Darcy was um, the baby born and we got to name her whatever Mike and Nate asked us to. So she has their surname Mm -hmm. and she's named for, they named her. I didn't have any say in what they named her. Um, so it's her full name on the birth certificate and then me listed as her mother and my husband listed as her father and my kids listed as her siblings. Wow. And that's, Yeah, it's pretty pretty strange to see a birth certificate when we've all got different surnames. She's <laughs> got a different surname to me. I don't have my husband's surname, so there's three different yeah. surnames on the birth certificate <laughs> for this child. Um, so we have this lovely birth certificate with our names on it and in reality hasn't actually meant much. Like I haven't used that to sort of have any parental rights. Mike and Nate have been doing 100% of the care since the day she was born, mm-hmm. apart from me providing breast milk and cuddles. I don't do anything else. <laughs> um, and they take her to the doctor and they, I, I accidentally ended up with her on my Medicare card, which was just a bureaucratic oversight. Um, but they still take her to the doctor and they still access medical care and they can enrol her in things and they can, you know, be parents. So what happens with the birth certificate, though, is that we apply for a parentage order from the county court in our case and it's uh, each state has their court that deals with it and we will have a hearing at the end of this month where we all go along. It's quite lovely. The judge doesn't sit up on their big table. They sit down with us and they meet everyone and then they make an order essentially it's transferring parentage from myself and my husband to Mike and Nate. And we get that order and it gets sent to births, deaths and marriages. And they issue a new birth certificate with Mike and Nate listed as her parents. Okay. Um, the lovely thing about that is that they then have a recognition that they are the parents and that they get to do everything that other parents do. Mm-hmm. And they've got that in title. You can sort of frame it and go, that's Darcy's birth certificate. Um, what it does mean though, is that there's still a record that, I was her birth mother. And what that means for later is that when she's older, if she needs to, if she wants to, she can actually apply for details about what's on that birth certificate. So there's not, I think there's concerns that it kind of erases the the surrogate from the birth certificate. Um, And for adopted families that can be quite stressful that they don't want to erase the birth family, for example. Mm -hmm. Um, with surrogacy, it was always our intention that they would be on the birth certificate. So it doesn't. I don't see it as an erasure, more a celebration. But it just for her rights and her interests, she's always able to access information about myself and my kids and Troy. And so if there was ever a reason why she didn't know who I was, and that won't be the case in our circumstances, but if there was ever something that she wanted to know, she could actually apply for information that's on her birth certificate, which would list Troy and I and the kids. Um, and she, you know, they, they do this so that kids who are donor-conceived can find out who their donor is and whether there's other, um, any other donor-conceived children out there as well. They can access information from the donor register because we really recognise these days that it's not about hiding yeah. um, a child's parentage, it's about their right to know. And with a, a gay couple, she's always going to know that she's got two dads but that clearly there was at least yeah. one woman involved. Um, <laughs> But for donor conceived children mm. we we really recognise it's not about keeping secrets anymore. Secrets aren't going to do anyone any good and mm-hmm. they should be able to access information about their, their donor history and their donor heritage and their conception and birth mm. and yeah, all of that sort of stuff.
0: Oh, excellent. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. And so I guess you're in such a unique situation. Um, So as a family lawyer, when did you decide to then specialise in surrogacy and what role do you really play in a couple's surrogacy journey?
1: Um, So I've been a family lawyer for about 13 years and I initially was working at Legal Aid and we didn't do surrogacy law there, it was just straight. Family law, a lot of family violence matters, parenting separation, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And then I uh, had my kids, and at some point left Legal Aid. I was made redundant after the birth of my second child. And after I'd uh, been at home for about 12 months with the kids, I, I worked at the Aboriginal Legal Service, which also didn't do surrogacy law. And then when I left there to set up my own practice, I thought I could. I was already an egg donor by then but I'd been thinking about surrogacy law and thought that could be something that I offer you know the surrogate that does surrogacy law so it sounds kind of cool um, and so I kind of jumped in and that's been about three years now three and a half years of thinking about um of doing surrogacy law and also I do things like donor agreements so if somebody's using a sperm donor in particular because that often doesn't happen through a clinic or uh sort of uh, Co parenting arrangements where you might have more than one adult, more than two adults involved. Um, so, surrogacy law became a real interest when I also saw that the people, the intended parents, and the surrogates were kind of going in blind and they really were relying on lawyers to guide them through. And a lot of the lawyers were kind of being gatekeepers about the information. And I thought, I think we can make this information much more accessible to people. Otherwise, they spend a lot of time on Google. Um, They don't find the answers or it's all very confusing because the state laws sometimes contradict each other and it depends which state you're in. And it's not clear just by Google about you know, what your rights are. And the clinics often don't know all the details either. So I jumped into surrogacy law. And uh, so now I represent either surrogates and their partners or the intended parents. And what happens with surrogacy is that they all have to have legal advice before conception. So I hear from people saying, we've we've decided to enter a surrogacy agreement, the clinic is ready to go with the embryos, but we all have started the counselling and now we need legal advice. So I will do like a Skype consult with the couple Mm -hmm. Um, let's say it's the surrogate and her partner and I go through all their rights and responsibilities and the consequences of the surrogacy arrangement, give them advice for that. And then I'll also draft agreements if I need to. Some, most states require them to have a written agreement. Um, And then after the baby's born, I can also then do the parentage order application, which you don't have to have a lawyer for, but if you want a lawyer, then I can help with that. And that's preparing all the documents and paperwork to submit it to the court to say this baby's now born, it was a surrogacy and we need a parentage order to switch the parentage from the surrogate and her partner to the intended parents. Um, And then separately to that, I also created the surrogacy handbook which allows people, it's a bit of a sort of 101 in surrogacy and takes people through the process so they can have that information and know what their options are in terms of surrogacy in Australia and uh, how it all works and how they put it all together.
0: And with all of that, if, with all the agreements and everything in place, is there a point where the surrogate is pregnant and someone can change their mind? So yes. whether that's the so, internet, Yeah, could you explain that, please? Sure, so that's probably the biggest question we get at the
1: beginning is mm-hmm. a surrogate will often ask, well, that's, uh, the intended parents often will say, well, what happens if she wants to keep the baby? What happens if yeah. she changes her mind? I can tell you that the surrogate's question is what happens if they decide not to take the baby? Mm-hmm. Because all the surrogates I know would have an option, if they wanted to have a baby, they would have an option to make their own baby. They don't want somebody else's baby. They're entering the surrogacy agreement to have a baby for somebody else. Mm. Um, In terms of changing their mind, on the whole, no, nobody really changes their mind. Um, I think because even if it was a matter that the relationship with the surrogate and the intended parents had broken down, they still don't want to keep the baby. It's still not something that ever crosses your mind that you want the baby that was never intended for you. Mm -hmm. Um, And often, quite often, the the baby is not genetically related to the surrogate at all anyway anyway. Um, she might be genetically the aunt or, you know, some other relation, but most of the time she's got no genetic connection with the baby. So she has no reason to want to keep it. Um, What has, what would happen though, is that the intended parents can't force her to hand over the baby. None of the agreement is enforceable. So if she decides I'm I'm actually not going to hand over the baby, then her and her partner remain the legal parents and they don't get a parentage order and they would stay on the birth certificate. the reality is that that's not actually happened in Australia. There have yeah. been a few cases where the relationships are broken down, and that the parties have all ended up in court arguing about it, but the baby has always ended up with the intended parents um, and it's The argument is generally not about should the baby stay with the surrogate it's more about the relationship between them and about money quite often that's That's where things get nasty if they get nasty yeah. at all i'd say it's, it's very much the minority
0: ah oh. that is so interesting. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, because that would be, I guess, a big consideration, and uh, the fact that a lot of people ask that question at the start, um, yes, (laughs) shows that that's a major um, concern for for both parties. But like you said, you you are going into it for a specific reason, and Mm. yeah, yeah, and you understand what the outcome is. So thank you for sharing. Um, So what I wanted to ask you now is actually about your podcast. So you're you're on the mic. I want you to explain uh, what it's about, why you started it and what you're hoping to achieve with it.
1: Sure. So I think uh, particularly during the pregnancy, I had lots and lots of people asking me questions and they would often start with, I hope you don't mind. Can I ask you some questions about (laughs) pregnancy?" once they'd realized it was a surrogacy and I had so many questions that they often fell into, you know, there were first 10 questions I was expecting. Was it your egg? How's your husband feel about it? That was an interesting one. Um, What happens if you don't want to hand it over? All of these questions. And I thought there really is a very interesting story about surrogacy. And when I would tell the story about Mike and Nate and how we met and why we were doing it and what, was really exciting about it. And then they wanted to know about the birth and they wanted to know about my relationship with Darcy. I thought I could talk all day about this. And I seemed to be saying the same story over and over and over whenever I met somebody in the street or I had a, a message, I was getting messages from people after the birth saying, please tell me about this surrogacy or commenting on the photo. And I thought, you know what? I could just make a podcast and talk about it because it's not just my story. It's all the surrogacy stories I hear are really interesting. Um, so I also thought, in terms of educating people and, and destigmatizing surrogacy, we could share these stories and people get to think about the options of um, what's it like if they went to Canada, what's it like if they did it here in Australia with their sister, for example, or with their friend uh, for a gay couple or for a straight couple who had survived cancer, that sort of thing. So I just started uh, I, the first few episodes of myself talking and Mike and Nate sharing their story. And then I also interviewed my husband. Lots of people want to know about how does your husband feel about you being pregnant with another man's baby? That's always an interesting discussion. (laughs) I find that question really interesting because, well, I guess because it was always my body and he doesn't own my body. So the idea that he could be offended by me carrying a baby for somebody else, he doesn't possess my uterus. Um, But at the same time, it's, it's a question that he gets as well. How does it feel to, you know, your wife's pregnant with somebody else's baby? What's that like? So I interviewed him for the podcast to talk about that and then I have interviewed lots of surrogates and lots of intended parents and a few other people to really just pull in all the stories that people can learn from um, and turned it into a podcast um so and that's fun I really like it because I get to talk about surrogacy in here I, I often reflect on the stories that I hear about how it might impact on my story and how our stories might be the same or different um Yeah, so that's really great. So that's called the Australian Surrogacy Podcast, and it's uh, you can find it on SoundCloud or uh, Apple Podcasts.
0: Yes. Oh my goodness, I love that, and I think that's great because then that's out there, especially if people are really interested in it. And like you said, it's really like it is kind of underground, so it's hard for people to sometimes find the information they need. But I think hearing the stories and the experiences um, would really help them.
1: Yes. Yep, that's
0: right. Ah, that's so wonderful, Sarah. Thank you. And you've also kindly created something for the Motherhood Melbourne community if they want to learn more about surrogacy. So can you please share what you've, what you've created for them?
1: Yeah, so there is the surrogacy handbook, uh, which is probably a good starting point for anyone that's interested in how it all works and the processes. But I've also created a list of resources for people to look at, because often the first question is, where do I start? I need to find a surrogate or I'm thinking about being a surrogate. So the list is really some details about where to get started. And most of it's happening in online forums like Fertility Connections. Or Facebook, so there's Egg Donation Australia, which is a good one if you're thinking about being a donor or that you need a donor. Uh, and then the Australian Surrogacy Community Facebook group is another one, and that's connected to Fertility Connections. Um, I think for people that are thinking, or oh, we're having trouble conceiving through IVF, for example, we think we might need a surrogate, the very first step is that you must Talk to your specialist about whether that is actually your only option. Surrogacy has to be the last option. It can't just be because IVF isn't working. There may be other things that they need to be looking at. And egg donation is actually something that should come before surrogacy if the egg quality is an issue. So I'd say egg donation Australia is a good place to start. Egg donation is also altruistic in Australia. Um, a lot of people get sent overseas to look for an egg donor. There are donors here in Australia and they're doing it without payment. And I think it's better for the children that the information about their egg donor is all recorded within Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so the, the list is all a bunch of resources and places to start. And I would also start with the podcast if you want to have a listen. Uh, if you're looking for my story, it's way back at episode number one and Mike and Nate's story is episode two. Uh, but there's about, I can't remember about 28 episodes up now. So yeah. And if they go through that and pick out stories that interest them and if they find me on Instagram or on Facebook, Mm -hmm. ask a question, just come along and have a chat with me on messenger and, and I can link you in with the groups and forums and things and yeah, get to know what surrogacy is all about. I really want women who have had their own babies and think I could do that again but I don't want the baby at the end. <laughs> or yeah. um, Wouldn't it be great to help somebody, but I don't know anyone near me that needs help. I don't have a sister or a friend that needs a surrogate. What do I do? Mm. Think about what you could do for somebody that starts off as a stranger, but, you know, my intended parents are my best mates. We're all family now. We have grown our family. If you get to, you know, choose your family in life, this is one way to do it. Yes. That we will always be connected. And it has been such a joy to go through surrogacy for them. Um, And I think if there's other women out there that would even contemplate it, it's worth thinking about and talking to other surrogates about the experience and thinking about whether they might do it themselves. That would be amazing.
0: Excellent. Thank you so much for sharing all those resources. Um, And I will have all the links so people can find you and connect with you and ask you those questions and find your podcast um, on the podcast page. So thank you, Sarah, so much for really, you know, opening up and being honest about your experience experience and also telling us about, you know, your experience as, as a surrogacy lawyer and also congratulations on your podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having <laughs> me, Holly. It's been such a pleasure to chat. Oh, thank you, Sarah. Gosh, I loved hearing Sarah's story and I hope it's helped to open your eyes up to egg donation and surrogacy. If you happen to have any further burning questions for Sarah, you'll find her deets over on the episode page on motherhoodmelbourne.com.au. And now I'd love to ask you to help a mama out. If you're in love with this podcast, could you please take a moment to write a review wherever you're listening? It helps more Melbourne mamas find this podcast and meet all of the fab mission mamas I've been featuring. Thanks, Emil. You're the best. Okay, that's a wrap because you might be able to tell that I've got a little bubby around at my feet as I'm trying to record this. So thanks for hanging out with me.